Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Ankit Patel. Dr. Patel attended undergraduate at Cornell University and got both his MD and PhD at Cornell. He completed his residency in internal medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital and stayed on there as a nephro fellow, which he still is. Dr. Patel has used his knowledge of the kidney and his experience in the lab to offer prescient contributions to the literature, especially amidst the global pandemic that we find ourselves in. Dr. Patel, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm doing well this morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's good to good to talk to you. So could you tell us more about yourself aside from the bio information that I've recited above and how you came to be where you are? Sure, absolutely. So, uh, you know, in my, my background, I kind of uh, studied um, the kidneys for a very long time. As an undergrad, I actually studied mosquito pee, of all things, and um, trying to understand how different solutes and, and ions get across um, epithelia um, intrigued me at, at an early stage in, in undergrad. And then as I kind of moved on and went into my PhD, I continued that trend and studied sodium reabsorption in the kidney. And one of the key factors there is the renin angiotensin aldosterone system that is an intricate regulator of uh, sodium reabsorption. And that mm-hmm. kind of got me in, involved and interested in, in this uh, cascade and physiological system that uh, has become pretty pretty relevant today. And yeah. so, so as this continued, I, I, I um, also uh, went on and completed my internal medicine and nephrology fellowship, as you mentioned, and have been working now in the lab uh, looking at um, combining regenerative medicine, bioengineering, to study um, the same kind of part of the kidney that I studied in grad school, um, but now trying to apply some new tools. So that's kind of where I am, where I am today. So are you working in the lab currently? Yes. So I'm currently uh, amidst a a postdoctoral fellowship, Mm -hmm. um, looking to generate um, uh, principal cells, the collecting duct from pluripotent stem cells using mm-hmm. a number of different approaches and then kind of study their function later on. Okay. So have you been in the hospital during the COVID um, I don't know, crisis? Pick your word. Have you been in the hospital treating patients since this started? Crisis seems appropriate, I think. <laughs> um, yes, I, I, I have been. Actually, I'm in the midst of a time, a stretch where I actually do not have much clinical uh, responsibilities, but given everything that happened and you know, really the, the toll that COVID has taken on, on patients' kidneys, um, we had, they had to call in some extra help. So I did spend some time amidst the kind of surge here in Boston mm-hmm. uh, in the hospital. So I did get some firsthand experience. Got it. So you said that you became interested in sodium in undergraduate in the kidney and the renin-aldosterone system. Um, you certainly can't get away from that if you're anywhere near a biology textbook, certainly an undergraduate. So did you always know that you wanted to be a nephrologist or was this something you were interested in? And then as you became you know, further in your training, you realized that this was a natural landing point for you. Yeah, that's right. I think, I think really some of the science that I became interested in early on drove some of my clinical interests and understanding how ion channels work, how like ions move across membranes, um, really was particularly interesting. I 
I had this thought that I would be interested in nephrology just from kind of how the science melts with um, with uh, the pathophysiology and, ne- and nephrology. Um, mm-hmm. But not until I got some more experience later in med school and, and had an opportunity to kind of see the, the intricate problem solving and ability to kind of span a number of different um, disciplines in nephrology um, did I really know that nephrology was the career choice for me. Okay. Well, it's so lovely that the world has people like you who <laughs> who are interested in um, ion transport and then end up um, where you are now. I mean, I'm sure you couldn't have predicted <laughs> where you would be now. It's just... Um, did you know someone who was a nephrologist or was just, I mean, I guess I'm just kind of fascinated because I'm picturing, you know, like, uh, you in undergrad, did you have experience (laughs) or exposure to medicine and science in that way? Or was it just honestly just the sort of physiology and then everything was sort of a downhill ride from there? Yeah, no, it was, it was totally serendipitous. Um, Uh so like I said, when I was an undergrad as a freshman in college, I, was looking for a lab to do research in because that's what I was told. If you wanted to go to medical school, you had to do research. Exactly. And, yes. Yeah. <laughs> everyone, does yeah. everyone does that. Yeah. <laughs> and I, um, I was actually looking at microbiology labs because I thought that was particularly interesting at the, the young age of 18. Um, and, <laughs> but happened to come across this lab in the veterinary school and at, at Cornell who studied, um, epithelial transport in mosquitoes and I happened to email him email this professor and he was the only one that actually ended up getting back to me and I really I often think back to that kind of serendipitous moment because that really started my interest in the science and and this interest in epithelial transport ion transport and um, as that kind of progressed um I actually had an opportunity to go with him on a sabbatical to Germany, which really kind of quenched my interest in the science. And oh, okay, so me. that sounds really cool. Yeah. Yeah, and that really Germany. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was quite an experience, and um, yeah, uh, and that really drove me towards uh, kind of pursuing the MD PhD track. Um, Amazing. So mosquitoes first, mosquitoes now kidneys. It all comes full circle. That's incredible. I'm very interested in mentorship. So I think it's very interesting that a veterinary research person and mosquitoes led you to where you are today. But, you know, everything happens for a reason. So um, 2020, I, I don't know, looking back how we're going to describe it. But so far, I, I sort of feel like um, it's been a lifetime since COVID started happening. It's been I, it's hard for you to fathom the fact that at the beginning of 2020, I didn't know this was coming, that it would just felt like a, another year. Um, but it's almost August. So, um, and I just heard recently that it was the six month anniversary of the first case of COVID-19 in the United States, which was diagnosed in Washington state in January. So um, from your perspective, can you tell me what 2020 has been like for you, especially if you have been more research focused and then you said there was some time when you were sort of called back up to the hospital. Um, was there a certain moment where you realized that life is going to be different now than it has been in the United States. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's really going to. I completely agree with you. It's going to be super interesting to see what you know five years, ten years down the line, what um, people say about twenty twenty. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. 
I hope it's like, oh, it got so much better after that. That's what I hope. Like that was really the worst point. That's what I hope. But we'll my, see. My fingers, are, my fingers are crossed. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. but definitely. Uh, so when when twenty twenty started, it actually was, um, you know, in the lab things were kind of uh, kind of status quo. We were, you know, doing our normal work and everything was fairly um, fairly normal for the early part of twenty twenty. And actually, just around January, um, I, there was a lab member of ours um, who had to go back to China, and he was actually from Wuhan. Oh my! Okay. And and when he was on his way back, he had to have the fourteen day quarantine, and mm-hmm. he ultimately did make it back to the lab um, around mid January. But you know, already the reports of what was going on in Wuhan. Yeah, that was earlier for the states, but not for not for Wuhan, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So there's always there was definitely a, a, a bit of concern, and and um, you know I did have a chance to speak with him when he came back, and uh, just hearing some of the stories um, from him of of kind of the concern and 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 um, and the lockdown there uh, was eye opening. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest that, that even at that time, I was like, well, there's no way this is going to happen here. I, I mm-hmm. did not expect that at, at any point then. I think really the first time I got something kind of flipped to, for me was when, um, when here in Boston, there was a, a conference that was held by um, one of the pharmaceutical companies. And mm-hmm. when that, um, there were reports that there was a coronavirus. Uh, there was a patient, a person infected with coronavirus, and that it was being spread um, in, amongst this conference. Many of the conference attendees had rushed into the emergency rooms across Boston. I remember that, tested. and they had to like get security involved, didn't they, or something? That's exactly right. I remember reading that and thinking, "What is happening?" <laughs> Because if you're in Rhode Island, I'm not that far from you. I was kind of like, huh, okay. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So totally. Uh, and, I, you know, we were just hearing reports of this. I wasn't actually in the emergency room to see this and did not see this firsthand. But <clears throat> I think that's really when I realized, well, this is not, this is, this is come here and uh-huh. we're going to have to deal with it. And, um, and s- slowly after that, um, a couple of weeks, the announcements of lockdown in um for research activity as you know um as well as you know just generally across uh across the state um came out and so you know i think that's when life really changed we we actually were a little bit longer i think it was march 20th when the official lockdown in the lab happened Mm -hmm. about a week later um and trying, you know, it was kind of a busy rush trying to wrap things up, get things settled, because we obviously didn't know when we'd be able to get back into the lab. Right. Um, so, so that was quite interesting. And then, <clears throat> as as things went back, I, I kind of went home, and it was just the me, my wife, and two kids, and we were just kind of watching the news and waiting to hear more word. It was a very surreal experience, as I think for many people. Yeah. Um, and in, in the, in the midst of kind of getting wrapped up in the news, um, I actually was speaking with one of my colleagues, um, Ashish Verma, who, you know, 
we, we he, he's actually, he's an incredible uh, colleague of mine who, um, who really scours the literature far and wide. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. And, and you and, authored a paper with him. Is that where you're talking about this? That's exactly right. Yeah. Exactly yeah. Right. And so um, he actually was, he brought to my attention this, uh, this kind of editorial that came from Journal of Tropical Medicine talking about uh, ARBs and uh, angiotensin inhibitors, angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors and um, the potential role they may play on ACE2. Um, uh, as as just around that time in, in March, there was already the initial reports of um, ACE2 being kind of an entry point for the virus. Right. So so that kind of got me pretty interested because I have this background and interest in um, in in the renin angiotensin aldosterone system. So that just we just kind of started reading and going back through the literature and trying to piece things together to better understand what was going on um, to see if this concern that these medications may actually be harmful in, in the coronavirus. Um, and that's where we all got started. Right. And at what point, so I think the peak in Rhode Island and the peak in Massachusetts were similar. It was like towards the end of April. Is that around the time when you were working in, with patients? In the hospital, yeah. So in terms of the hospital, it was it was it was interesting. So I actually early on because I did my residency in the same hospital, uh-huh. um, a couple of my friends who were actually chief medical residents uh, for the year had contacted me to say, you know, would you be willing to to moonlight um, to help out with um, what they thought were going to be uh, an increased number of patients coming into the hospital. And mm-hmm. I was, I was happy to do so. Um, but ultimately things changed pretty rapidly in how the hospital was kind of adapting to the surge. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that the, the distribution of the workforce actually uh, came from each individual division. So um, the nephrology division you know, kind of was in charge of trying to figure out how they needed to handle the surge um, and, and help out the general department of medicine in general. So, um, so the first, my first experience was actually uh, going to work in the COVID ICU in, in March, in the end of March. Ooh. And um, that was uh, very much a surreal experience because, you know, you've kind of been at home for a few weeks and Jumping right back into the deep end. Yeah. (laughs) Just jumping right back into the deep end. Right back in. Had no idea what to expect. Yeah. Um, But it was, it was, it's actually pretty surreal because, you know, I definitely had a bit of anxiety coming in because, um, you know, you just don't know what to expect. Um, But when I got there, it was a very surreal experience. There's no patient families. Um, Mm -hmm. It's really just kind of the, the medical staff taking care of the patients and it was actually a very calm environment, uh, surprisingly. Hmm. Oh, that's um, interesting. Just <clears> the, <throat> the, the makeup of the, it's just the medical staff and the patients. So it was yeah. different than what, and you hadn't been there in a while. I'm sure that was absolutely right. surreal. Yeah. Yeah. So it was very surreal. Um, but then as we kind of became, be, began to learn that there's a lot of kidney disease that seems to be coming with it. Um, uh-huh. 
our division really kind of shifted to use the manpower within to focus more on nephrology needs. Right, right. And so as a, as a senior fellow, um, I came in and helped out with um, the ICU consult service. Okay. And um, we essentially, we typically have maybe 15 to 20 patients, and we more than doubled that um, during the surge. And would you say that most COVID patients end up needing a nephrologist or what's your experience there? I mean, the ones who end up in the ICU, I would assume, probably the ones who are at home, obviously, you know, they're just taking care of it as best they can. But the people who end up in the hospital, would you say more commonly than, I don't know, other viral pneumonias or something, they're definitely needing you more? Without a doubt. Absolutely. There is, I would say, close to 50% of the ICU patients. Um, um, ended up having an ICU consul- uh, nephrology consultation and a okay. good proportion requiring renal replacement therapy. So it was it okay. was um, it was quite an experience to say the least. <laughs> yeah, really. And you're still standing, I assume. Maybe you're sitting right now, but metaphorically, you're still standing. So um, I reached out to you and and uh, we connected because you've been writing about the role of angiotensin converting enzyme 2 or ACE2, which has been, like you said, a hot topic of discussion, which I'm sure back when you signed on to work on mosquitoes, you never could have pictured. But um, <laughs> I'd like to talk because you've written several articles. I'd like to kind of talk about them one at a time. Um, your first article was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. You were talking about your co-author uh, back in March. Um, can you talk about, you briefly touched on it, but talk more about what prompted the publication and maybe give an overview of the evidence that you summarized about the possible role of angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers, or I think you called them ARBs. I mean, I'm sure that's the lingo in nephrology and um in patients infected with SARS-CoV-2? Yeah, absolutely. So as I was mentioning, um, as me and Ashish kind of were delving into the literature and we had this couple of initial reports, uh, editorials that suggested that these medications, ACE inhibitors and ARBs, could be potentially harmful by increasing ACE2 levels, we started looking in to see what the evidence was. And most of this evidence was in animal data. So there were okay. these uh, studies from the mid-2000s that had looked at ACE2 levels um, in response to, in the heart and in the kidney, in response to uh, these medications, ACE inhibitors and ARBs. But these were in animals. These were in rats and in mice. Right. And when we tried to look for evidence of the regulation of ACE2 by these enzymes, or the, by these medications in humans, the evidence is pretty sparse. Uh, we found some, you know, one study that looked at the effect of ARBs on urinary ACE2, mm-hmm. um, but this information was really, really limited, and um, there was not much information uh, very specifically about the levels of ACE2 in the respiratory tract, which is where the virus really kind of gains entry and we think has a very prominent role in kind of the the mortality associated with the virus. Right. And so, you know, there's a lot of concern that ACE2, because it's the entry point for the virus, at higher levels are harmful. Right. As we kind of went into some of the early studies, um, there were some beautiful studies by uh, Joseph Penninger's group in the early 2000s and mid-2000s 
that actually showed that ACE2 can be quite protective uh, in different types of lung injury. So just and, having upregulated ACE2 in the lung can be protective, irrespective of whether or not you're on one of these medications? That's that's exactly right. At least this is mm-hmm. what the animal studies suggest. Okay, okay. And, and the idea is that um, in terms of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, you know, what we typically think of is the renin, um, upregulation of renin in the kidney in response to the blood volume mm-hmm. uh, leads to angiotensin two generation, uh, and then ultimately aldosterone. And angiotensin two is really kind of the critical role. So the typical things we think of as physicians, angiotensin two can cause vasoconstriction and increase blood pressure. But some of the other things that we, at least, I, you know, I typically didn't think of previously to, prior to going into all this was um, that it actually plays a significant role in inflammation. Mm-hmm. and fibrosis. And so um, there was this discovery of ACE2 and uh, some other molecules that ACE2 can generate from angiotensin 2, uh, particularly angiotensin 1-7, which is just a product of angiotensin 2. After the ACE2, the enzyme uh, um, cleaves it. Mm-hmm. And angiotensin 1-7 essentially does the opposite of what angiotensin 2 does. It causes vasodilation, Hmm. it decreases inflammation, and decreases fibrosis. Hmm. So in the setting of lung injury, it seems to be particularly helpful. Yeah, that's kind of what you'd want when SARS-CoV-2 is trying to do a number on your lungs. So yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And so this is kind of where the, the thought process was going. But, you know, we wanted to acknowledge that these are these are studies from a little while ago that are right. in animals, and really um, thinking about the translatability of these studies is, is limited. So, mm-hmm. but it's important to kind of at least have a framework of how to think about how these medications can be potentially beneficial or potentially harmful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what we wanted to kind of at least outline and really stress the point that we just don't have enough information at that time in March to say that these medications are harmful or beneficial and the, the, the best way forward. And according to some statements from, uh, so, you know, hypertension societies, cardiology societies at the time suggested to, uh, um, continue forward and continue these medications, um, despite, right. despite some of the, uh, early reports that they may be harmful. And, um, not to ruin the, the ending, but do, um, I can imagine this is a very hard thing to study from an epidemiologic standpoint, right? There's probably so much confounding and so many other things going on that you'd have to control for. And I'm just thinking about the fact that, you know, until very recently, for example, they weren't releasing demographic data along with the, you know, mortality data, at least at the national level. But do you think we understand more now than we do in March? Or do you think this is still a bit of a black box? Yeah, it's a great question. So, I think the demographic and retrospective data that's come out on this topic is helpful Mm -hmm. because it it does give us a sense um, of whether these medications are particularly, particularly harmful um, or maybe potentially beneficial. It gives us a general sense um, if there was a very strong signal. And 
Um, there's a number of different uh, publications that have come out um, looking at different cohorts uh, on this topic, um, but, you know, all being retrospective, but they've kind of had a similar, a similar point and a, a similar conclusion, which is they can't particularly find any, any um, harmful effects of ACE inhibitors or ARBs uh, in actually two settings in terms of uh, mortality from COVID-19, mm -hmm. but also in terms of uh, the risk of becoming infected with COVID-19, mm -hmm. which are, I think, two, two separate um, but very important right. points. Right. Because one would think if the, if the animal studies would correlate perfectly with human uh, sort of progression of disease, having higher levels of ACE2 would equal higher rate of infectivity, at least from a logical perspective, that doesn't seem to be playing out. But one thing that does seem to be happening over and over again in these data sets is hypertension is a risk factor for sort of adverse outcomes. So it seems to me like someone like you is probably saying, well, what's, what's worse for my patient? You know, being on this drug, at least early in the pandemic, being on this drug that may have an association with this increased risk or having uncontrolled hypertension. And it seems like the choice is not to have uncontrolled hypertension, right? I mean, yeah. that seems like it's it's worse for one's body, but I do no, not manage that, people's hypertension. That, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave that to you. <laughs> no, that you're, you're, I think you're you're right. You're, you're right on that. In that note, um, it's it's definitely um, there's a lot of concerns um, when you switch to different types of hypertensive medications as well, mm -hmm. um, and and you know the retrospective data has been particularly good at identifying some key um, uh, comorbidities and demographic data that uh, suggest uh, poorer outcomes, like you suggested. Right. And the association with hypertension, you know, definitely kind of in the moment, it's important to control hypertension, but I think a lot of the pathophysiology of, of how hypertension develops and kind of the impact it has on the on the RAS system, but also other systems in the body, probably mm -hmm. the mechanisms by which it predisposes um, predisposes people to having worse outcomes in COVID nineteen, and right. kind of you know I'm, as I mentioned, the retrospective data suggesting that these medications are not helpful or harmful. I think there's still some kind of interesting thoughts that. Specifically, ARBs are angiotensin receptor blockers, and maybe even angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors could be helpful in COVID 19. And the retrospective data really can't answer that in a meaningful way. And so there are actually a whole host of prospective trials that are looking to, to try and answer that question. And so. Interesting. So would those trials be in folks who already had hypertension and were already on these medicines? Or are you talking about people who develop it during the disease process and you're using those medicines, say, in the hospital? Or maybe both? You're asking the exact right question. So these prospective trials, if broadly speaking, are kind of split into two. Uh -huh. One set of the trials are looking at patients that are already on ACE inhibitors or ARBs. Uh -huh. develop COVID-19 and then become, come into the hospital. And what they'll do is those sets of patients, they're planning on either keeping them on the ACE inhibitor and ARB during the hospitalization or switching them to another blood pressure medication. Got it. 
mm-hmm. and to see if there's a difference in outcomes. Another mm-hmm. set of studies are taking patients that don't have hypertension and actually either giving them a placebo drug or putting them on an ARB. And obviously, even if they don't have hypertension in the exactly. hospital, just seeing if, okay, sort of tinkering around with angiotensin um, levels would, would change their outcome. That's great. That's what, that's what has to happen, right? That's the gold standard. For science. That's, that's exactly right. And, and uh, yeah. though it's the gold standard, it takes a little bit of time for us to get that information. I know. As you know. I know. And the nation is literally like perched on the edge of their seat waiting for any news about this. So I imagine it's hard to have people asking you these questions all the time. So um, just as a, a caveat that I have not been in medical school for a long time and learned about hypertensive controlling medications are, and this is probably like entry level, are these two drugs, these ARBs and the um, enzyme inhibitors, are they, they're pretty common, right? Are they the most common drugs that people take for hypertension or is, are there protocols about you try this first and then these are like second line? How does that work? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. You're absolutely right. This is a great point. And, you know, the medications that we initially used to treat people for hypertension kind of has changed over time. Yeah. But um, these medications are in the set of, I would say, the first three med- sets of medications that you would try. Okay. And so okay. these are incredibly common and incredibly um, common and and, mm-hmm. and used uh, broadly. And not only are they used for hypertension, but they're also helpful in, in treating uh, heart failure and certain mm-hmm. types of kidney disease. And so mm-hmm. um, that just again increases kind of the number of patients that are actually on these medications and the fact that they're on them for different indications. Sure. And have you had patients, I mean, I know you probably aren't in the clinics right now, but are you getting any uh, sense that folks who are on these medications are scared to take them now? Or do you think maybe this this esoteric scientific discussion hasn't trickled down into the into the non-scientific community? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. Actually, um, as, as kind of clinics closed early on, um, uh-huh. you know, I didn't have a, a direct panel of patients that um, or contacting me. So I was actually curious about the same question. And when I talked to some of my colleagues who had a, a panel of patients that they were having to communicate with during mm-hmm. this, during this early stages of this epidemic, uh, they mentioned that this was a quite a common occurrence. Mm-hmm. So I, I actually reached out to um, my primary care um, uh, mentor and supervisor when I was a resident. And I just asked asked him, you know, if if he was actually getting any of these questions, and he said that he would be getting them on uh, multiple questions about about these medications on a daily basis. And it seemed like that information did trickle down to okay. to patients. Oh well, I hope everyone's still taking their medicine because, like we said, it's probably worse as a general rule to have wildly out of control hypertension in this right. time when probably everyone's blood pressure is already up. So. Um, uh, as a parent, I, um, have been looking a lot for knowledge about this disease process in children. You know, that inflammatory syndrome that's cropped up is obviously terrifying, but you also wrote an article about nasal ACE2 levels in COVID-19 in children. Can you talk a little bit about that editorial that you wrote? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, kind of as, as me and Ashish, um, had become, um, 
interested in this topic, uh, we got um, we got acquainted with some of the other literature, and this was kind of an interesting study that came out of Mount Sinai from a group of researchers that were looking at um, looking at a cohort of patients from 2015 and 2018 as part of an ASM study. And this was kind of a nice cohort to study because this was not in the context of COVID, right. but these were patients um, that had nasopharyngeal swabs so um, that were done for research protocol. And so you had access to kind of the cells um, in the upper airways, which mm-hmm. we think is where the coronavirus comes in. Mm-hmm. And so um, this provided... And, and then what they had done was they had extracted the RNA and actually looked at expression of certain genes in the nasopharynx, um, in the upper airway of these mm-hmm. 305 patients. And they had a wide range of um, ages um, from very young uh, to, to um, older ages. And, but it was really kind of concentrated um, in the, the younger population. And the reason that they were interested in looking at these um, patients, as you mentioned, you know, there is this inflammatory syndrome that seems to prop up in in young children or in children. Um, but the other thing that we were reporting is that age was a big contributor to uh, COVID-19 severity. And mm-hmm. um, we were really not seeing a lot of really young children that were getting severe disease. Right. So they were trying to f- identify if there was a potential rationale why children were not getting um, more severe disease. Um, so they, what they did was they looked at ACE2 levels in, in this 305 patient cohort and measured just the gene expression. So how much of the uh, ACE2 gene was being expressed and then looked at it across different age groups. Mm-hmm. And they found a significantly lower amount of ACE2 levels in the upper airway of patients that were under the age of <clears throat> under the age of ten. Mm-hmm. Now, I think it's important to know that ACE2 in the upper airway probably does not impact the severity of disease. We really think maybe ACE2 levels in the the lower respiratory tract are probably more important for that, but. the upper airway is an important entry point for infection. And so likely Mm -hmm. it does uh, probably impact the rate at which children contract COVID-19. Right, right. And this obviously a very prescient discussion with the impending or non-impending opening of schools. Um, Yeah. I mean, you know, you said you have children. I don't know how old they are, but I know my kids are pretty young and I mean, the odds that they're going to bring home a cold to me in any school season, 100%, you know, like it, it just happens <laughs> every year. So, um, and, you know, they talk about social distancing and having kids wear masks. And I don't know how much a four-year-old or a, you know, <laughs> three-year-old can even understand what you're talking about uh, on a deeper level. But um, it's very interesting. And, and uh, yeah, and, and just the, and this was a cohort of asthmatic children, wasn't it? A cohort of Yeah, um, that's exactly asthma. right. Yeah. So um 
and that's the other thing that has been, I know you're not a, a pulmonologist or you don't, you don't treat people with asthma, but there's always been this uh, mixed data around what happens to asthmatic people. Do they get infected less? Do they get infected more when they get infected? Do they have worse outcomes? And it seems like that's kind of an unanswered question still, but it is interesting to me that this cohort of children with asthma had decreased levels of this sort of entry point for the, you know, SARS-CoV-2 virus. So Absolutely. And, and yeah. they did try to, to control for, for the presence of asthma since not everyone in their cohort had asthma. Right. Um, but, but you're right. It does kind of, uh, it, it, it does make you wonder about the generalizability of the, of the data to a certain degree. Yeah. Um, but it's, I mean, it's, it would explain why children are not seeming to, I mean, I know there are obviously exceptions to the rule and even one child having an adverse outcome is too many, but just compared to say what's happening in nursing homes, right. Which is just heartbreaking um, that uh, the children at least seem to be spared from the worst part of this. I Um, I would just say one quick thing about that. Mm -hmm. So like I was saying, it's really, I think the upper airway um, ACE2 levels probably relate to kind of the ability of getting infected. Um, But when we look at the data, it's really not, clear to me um, that children are getting infected at a lower rate than mm. adults. We know that they don't show not, symptoms. They're not getting sick. Right. Right. Exactly. And so, and, and yeah. Mm-hmm. And every time we talk about any of this in our country, I don't know about other countries. You just wonder, well, how many asymptomatic children are even getting tested? Probably not that many. Right. That's <laughs> We don't have enough tests to even test the people in the hospital. So they're not going around to daycares and just lining up 24-year-olds and swabbing the back of their nose, which sounds like a horrible task for anyone. But, um, you know, it it just every time someone talks about this kind of thing, like you're saying, how many kids are even infected and we never know it. And how would we know unless I guess we start doing antibody testing, which opens up a whole nother can of worms, right? So That's right. And we have some data in terms of contact tracing. Uh, And so when I I was looking into this, I found a couple of reports that were kind of contradictory. It's one that suggested that children kind of uh, contract the disease, contract um, COVID-19 at the same rate as adults. Um, Uh And another one that suggested it at a lower rate. So I think, at least to me, I, I couldn't find very convincing data to point me uh, one direction or the other. Right, um, right. And yeah, and as someone who works in laboratory science, I always question, you know, the pre-analytic yes. um, factors. Like, who took the swab? How did they do the swab? I have a child. I know how hard it would be to take a Q-tip and put it basically like not far away from his brain. He wouldn't be happy about that. It wouldn't be easy <laughs> to do. You know, I mean, you've been there and you've seen people test kids for strep throat. It's not, oh. even that isn't easy, you know, but we're talking about taking a swab all the way at the back of someone's nose, which I'm not even sure I've had it done because I've had the flu before. It's not right. pleasant. So when you, when you think about this and you see even, you know, the data on, I remember reading the data on the package insert from the FDA initially. They would test the same patient four times and their test was only positive twice, you know? So you just wonder who's doing these tests? How are they being done? What methods are they using? But that's also a whole nother can of worms. <laughs> that's what's fun about science, right? Yeah, exactly. no, you're exactly <laughs> spot on, I think. I, yeah. I will say one last thing on this topic, though. Yeah. Um, uh, because of kind of some of these editorials, I've had 
chance to connect with a number of different people across the, the world, which has been really oh, interesting yeah. and hear about some of the work that other people are doing. And I think, uh -huh. um, you know, I'll just say that there is some really interesting data on this topic that I think will be hopefully published soon um, that will answer a lot of questions. So I'm really eager to see that get out um, yeah. in terms of looking at uh, kids and their ability to get infected and, and so forth. Okay. And do you tweet at all? Is this something that people could follow you on Twitter to find out? Yeah, what you think please. Yeah? Absolutely. Okay. So what's yeah. your Twitter handle? So people, I'll put it in the show notes as well, but you can say it. Absolutely. It's, it's my first name, A-N-K-I-T. My middle uh -huh. initial B is in boy. And then my last name, Patel. Okay. Uh, seven. Nice. At, at Uncut B Patel seven. Yeah. All right. That'd be great. I'll throw that in the show notes. Well then, I mean, parents the world over will be, I mean, waiting for this data to come out because none of us know what we're going to do with our kids. <laughs> That's know? exactly it's, right. It's a, it's a national and a worldwide burning question. So, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your general experience as a nephrologist in this time, which is going to be interesting because you were sort of there during the surge. But um, can you talk a little bit about what your experience was like? You said initially sort of in the ICUs and then more as the nephrologist in the ICUs instead of sort of managing the entire patient. Um, I assume that as a nephrologist, you are accustomed to seeing very sick people. Um, my main interaction with nephrology has always been um, through doing an, uh, renal biopsies, which I do, I am not a renal pathologist, but I did you know, sort of assessments of adequacy for these biopsies. And those patients are obviously very sick if you end up needing a renal biopsy in that setting, um, of acute illness. But I've been reading about the effects of COVID-19 long-term in the kidney. It seems like that's evolving, but it, like you said, it's more serious than we thought at first. And then also, a lot of the national conversation, at least at the beginning of the pandemic, was about ventilators. Do we have enough ventilators? Where are the ventilators? Who are we sending the ventilators to? How are we going to decide who gets a ventilator? And then sometimes a nephrologist will sort of pop their hand, you know, raise their hand in the background and say, a lot of these patients need dialysis machines as well. Do we have enough dialysis machines? And so that seems like a conversation that we're also not having. So um, can you talk about those issues, any or all of them, as you please? Yeah, no, thank you for highlighting this, because this is an incredibly important topic. And something that, as you mentioned, is is not uh, did not get as much uh, limelight as um, kind of the ventilator issue. So, so just to touch on this, you know, when I was in the COVID ICU, you know, um, I did get an opportunity to kind of get a sense of, of some of the lung pathology and kind of the uniqueness of um, the lung pathology that occurs in these patients the incredible ability of improving oxygenation by proning, um, uh -huh. you know, the idea of, of, of how these patients can you know, seemingly be on the re recovery stage and, and actually come off the ventilator and then have this sudden decompensation right. um, and kind of trying to correlate these clinical findings with what's going on pathophysiologically. So thinking about, Know, what's the role of shunting and and really thrombosis and and um, and you know this VQ mismatch that we see what is um, what's causing this sudden decompensation and this hyperinflammatory esque syndrome that seems to occur after the viral load is being cleared right. mm -hmm. so some I think really important questions that are are, are trying to that we're trying to 
uh, deconstruct. But, you know, as you mentioned, and as I was kind of alluding to earlier, is that we also saw a huge amount of kidney disease. And Mm -hmm. there's a number of different questions. One is how to best treat it first and foremost, and then understanding exactly how does it occur and if that can kind of better help us treat the disease as well. So um, initially when this was all occurring, uh, these patients would develop kind of rapid acute kidney injury. And at least from what we were seeing from the clinical standpoint, it looked like it was acute tubular necrosis. So Mm -hmm. kind of uh, the tubular epithelial cells were dying off, something that we commonly see with, for instance, sepsis or Mm -hmm. um, prolonged hypotension and a very common form of of acute kidney injury. Mm-hmm. And so these patients had to go as they were on ventilators and and uh, critically ill would go on most often, if possible, uh, continuous forms of renal replacement therapy. So these are the CRRT or the CVPH, or there's a number of different uh, modalities there. But they would, these were the mechanisms. And essentially, you would have to have a catheter for access to the blood. You know, it would go through a machine on a continuous basis uh, and either use a convection or diffusive type of clearance, um, mm-hmm. and you would return kind of fluid back to the patient. Now, one of the things that we saw early, early on was that just in terms of operationalizing this process is that these patients have are very inflamed. And what we, what we found is they were often clotting off these machines. So one of the big issues that we see is these machines, they can, you can develop blood clots at the filter. And mm-hmm. when you develop a blood clot at the filter, essentially you have to take down the whole filter and put in a new one. And that can be kind of a long process. And if this happens frequently, you're really um, preventing the um, therapy from, being, from actually right. working because you're just not on the machine for long enough to, right. to get any clearance. And so um, that was one of the big things that we were trying to kind of across the across the country, you know, particularly in, in places that were being hit hard, like New York and Boston and, and Washington. But we were um, really trying to figure out what's the best way to kind of uh, prevent this from happening. Um, and, you know, we tried a number of different solutions. We tried heparin and, and ultimately um, people were trying starting to get innovative and, and um, using uh, different modalities together to see if we can prevent clotting, such as mm-hmm. citrate solutions and heparin. So it's gotten that was, better, you think? It, 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 it did to a certain degree, but it was still kind of always there. And that, that, that mm. process was definitely a little bit higher, even despite these changes, um, than what we normally see. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I think... Uh, what we were also realizing is as the surge was really hitting its peak is that we were not going to have enough machines to, to be able to give everyone that acquired um, this therapy um, the option to get it. Mm-hmm. And um, even, you know, we saw it in our hospital, but I was talking to some colleagues down in New York and I think it was even, particularly worse there where we had to ration had to ration machines so mm-hmm. instead of this being a 24-hour therapy uh 
patients would get only 12 hours to kind of just sustain them mm-hmm. um, because there just weren't enough machines. And mm-hmm. um, again, I like to say that nephrologists are pretty innovative. And uh, um, down in New York, you know, I think they led the charge, but um, they, tr- they developed a new opportunity to do provide continuous dialysis, uh, and that's uh, peritoneal dialysis. So, right. so they started this acute PD program where patients would get a catheter in their abdomen and essentially use their peritoneal membrane as a form of dialysis. And that occurs 24 hours. And you can just exchange the solutions in the, in the abdomen um, to kind of cl- uh, clear out um, what's being uh, diffused across the peritoneal membrane. And so it's kind of, in a, in a sense, I think one thing that I hopefully positive like people take away is that peritoneal dialysis is something that um, is really not often used in, in the U.S. Um, you know, so the two main, very broad speaking ways of performing dialysis is through the peritoneum and this peritoneal dialysis form or through hemodialysis, which I think most people are more accustomed right. to hearing about and seeing. But yeah, I always kind of associated peritoneal dialysis with folks who were very, very sick and couldn't get hemodialysis, but perhaps you're saying that's not a, a, a correct interpretation because it seems like um, you're saying they use it a lot in other parts of the world. So Exactly. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's, that's, that's the consumption we, we develop in the U S because it's just not used enough, but, Oftentimes, it could be um, it could be a much more gentler form of dialysis, and people can live a, a much higher quality of life. And this is speaking outside of the COVID mm-hmm. um, situation. But um, what I hope is that people can realize from this is that you know peritoneal dialysis, oftentimes, uh, for many patients, might be a better option than hemodialysis. And I think mm-hmm. there's a general uh, a general push. Um, in the nephrology community to kind of uh, promote peritoneal dialysis because we do think that patients will benefit in the, uh, in the long run. Um, so hopefully, you know, by seeing maybe a little bit more um, and, you know, in the acute setting uh, of the surge, um, requiring it to, to get patients treated and, and taken care of, um, hopefully we can also bring some light to uh, maybe the benefits of peritoneal dialysis or hemodialysis. And do you think that the need for dialysis in the acute setting, certainly, I mean, knock on wood, um, the levels in our part of the country have gone down, but was there a shift towards um, maybe lengthening the interval between dialysis sessions for folks who needed dialysis and had no relation to COVID-19? Were there machines being moved to the hospital? Is that not how it works? Or also, were these these patients probably had underlying comorbidities? So we can't do that. You can't do dialysis virtually, obviously. But were you, were they being spaced out more, or how is that working? Yeah, I know that this has been a, another kind of topic of conversation: is how do you um, how do you better uh, dialyze patients in the outpatient setting, especially early mm-hmm. on when everyone was very concerned about being close to anyone else. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, and patients had to go to a hemodialysis center and, you know, there's mm-hmm. only so much distancing that can be done in a hemodialysis center. 
in order mm-hmm. to get therapy. And so that was exact. That's exactly right. And there was definitely some controversy in the nephrology community whether we can space people out instead of three days a week to two days a week to kind of minimize mm-hmm. exposure. Mm-hmm. Now, should we be um, kind of uh, testing patients before they come into the hemodialysis center? Or can we just mm-hmm. go by symptoms? Um, or the people who work there? I mean, that's that exactly another, right. You know, exactly yeah. right. And there was actually a, a, a short research letter in JAMA as well that kind of looked at um, testing of even asymptomatic uh, people, both workers mm-hmm. and patients, in a hemodialysis uh, facility in, I believe it was Indiana, and found quite high rates of asymptomatic mm-hmm. inf- infection. Mm-hmm. And so uh, these were all kinds of... Uh, uh, questions that were being um, kind of asked, and and really, unfortunately, just there was no definitive solution. But mm-hmm. I think um, people were definitely trying to be innovative in trying to minimize contact and uh, right. opportunity for transmission, um, both from workers to patients and patients to patients as well. But um, yeah. it it I had not seen it personally. Uh, where patients mm-hmm. were being kind of uh, lengthened out to two days per week as much, mm-hmm. but it was mm-hmm. definitely um, something that's been 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 talked about in the literature, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, a number of other places had done that. Yeah, I mean, you wonder what's happening in places like Arizona and Texas right now with with the, the just the levels and the sheer volume that they have there. So um, it's an evolving situation. We can put a pin in that one, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so this has been a very interesting conversation, and I appreciate you coming. Is there anything else you wanted to mention before we wrap up? Well, no, I, I'd like to thank you for, for having me. It's been a wonderful time. I had a great time yeah. uh, chatting about this, and appreciate you spreading the word. I think there's going to yeah. be a lot of interesting uh, information that's going to be coming out shortly, and um, I'm happy to, to kind of uh, be a part of this and, and hopefully um, – you know, at the end, just help better treat our patients. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with the uh, sort of undersung organ that is being um, almost equally impacted just in terms of the numbers, you know, uh, lungs and kidneys. You can't, you need both. So um, I really appreciate you coming. Thanks so much. Thank you again. Much Mm -hmm. appreciated. Yeah. Yeah.